welcome to Stargate SG Fun, the podcast where we talk about episodes of the original Stargate SG-1 series, spending more time on the episodes we like and a little less on the ones that are less interesting. I'm Trishy Matson. I'm Andrew Pontius. And I'm David Schaub. And today we uh, have three episodes in our sights. Uh, we'll talk briefly about Korai, then Enigma, and then Solitudes. So, Andrew, why don't you start us off with a recap of Korai? Korai is an episode where SG-1 visits the planet of Cartago, where the natives put Teal'c on trial for his crimes as Apophis's first prime. The team argues both that he has changed and that he made the best decisions he could under Apophis to save lives, but Teal'c is sentenced to death. He redeems himself when the village is attacked again by attacking the invading Jaffa and shielding the villagers from harm. So I didn't have any great memories of this in the past before I watched it again for, for the podcast. There are discussions about the nature of guilt and redemption, a revisit of what happens in the pilot. Daniel talks through it again. An exploration of what Teal'c did during his long service as First Prime to surreptitiously help out his victims. So there are a lot of little good bits in it, but I think overall it just didn't hit home as well as it could be. I think I've talked in the past about how the emotional scenes, the scenes where the characters are, are going to try to have sort of a moment with each other, often don't hit as hard as they could because the show is not great at writing those kind of nuanced scenes for characters. It's not really that much about character development. And then unfortunately it's the case here as well. And it, it could have been so good because they are revisiting, you know, why is Teal'c their friend? He did all these bad things. It didn't quite work for me. But it does still sort of have a heartwarming ending. It feels like it's definitely in tune, in matching up with the rest of the season and the rest of the show. So, you know, it's it's still a decent Stargate episode if you have the time to watch it, I think. But uh, it, it both didn't necessarily add a whole lot mythology-wise to the series, and it wasn't really necessary. And, and again, there weren't any emotional moments that were needed. That's, I think, all I need to say about that. Yeah, it's it's an okay episode. There are no cringy moments or anything like that. It's fine to watch it. It doesn't really add a lot to the um, continuity of the right. universe that we need to revisit. There were a few things that interested me. When Jack was back on Earth trying to get Hammond to send a, a military squad to break Teal'c out of jail, Hammond refused because... He says, you know, look at it this way. We don't uh, forgive war criminals for everything we do. And Jack is really indignant at the thought of Teal'c being a war criminal. But there's certainly an argument to be made for that. He is working on redeeming himself, of course. And it would be a waste, <laughs> if nothing else, to let this valuable resource be uh, disposed of, let alone the actual friendships that have been developing. But there, there is an argument, certainly, for letting this trial process go through, especially since Teal'c has willingly surrendered himself right. to their process. Right, right. I didn't watch Korai. Maybe I will. I do think it's kind of funny, though, by the description, it sounds like pretty much the entire Teal'c arc of The Enemy Within again, where Teal'c is in trouble, gets thrown in jail, and then beats up the right people and gets away with it. Um, <laughs> I want to argue with that, but I don't think I can. <laughs> Just a bunch of things the show did, they, they got from the Stargate movie and that they made up for themselves. These really interesting situations they got themselves in, which could have so much sort of, I keep saying nuance is probably a better way to describe it, but you know, ways of, of, of exploring the human condition in really profound and deep ways. And this show just can't quite do it. They have a war criminal as part of their team. Shouldn't that be a bigger part of what they talk about? Nope. In most episodes, he's just <laughs> another person on the team who's, you know, helping him out. He's a good guy. In like a prestige show, this would have been a whole big arc where like people are suspicious of him, maybe. And nope, you know, Daniel just likes him now, even though he helped kidnap Sharae. Yeah, this show is no 
the measure of a man. <laughs> We're just not going to go into stuff that deeply. The other thing about this, though, is, that I will bring up is Daniel does mention that the language, the pseudo language that they speak, because of course they all really speak English, but the pseudo language that they speak is Latin. So that will come into play with um, solitudes, which I thought was nice. Latin is much, presumably, a much later language than, than ancient Egyptian. Oh, absolutely. Just one world building point in this when the Jaffa come and attack uh, the villagers. The Jaffa Shackle says to Teal'c, your death will assure my place as first prime for Apophis. And that yeah. puzzled me because has Apophis left his first primeship vacant all this time? Yeah. Or does this guy hope that he will replace whoever is the new first prime or what? I think Shackle had it during the Nox episode as well. He already had the golden emblem on his forehead, which I thought the golden emblem meant you were first prime. That's what I thought too. I mean, it looks cool. <laughs> Whatever the meaning of it is, it looks cool that he has it. <laughs> oh yeah. And also from a continuity standpoint, yeah, Shackle's gone. So you're not seeing Shackle anymore. You saw him in the Knox. You're not going to see him after this. So yeah, I, I suspect that that was just, they wanted to have that for the storyline that, you know, Shackle saying that dramatic line, mm -hmm. you know, you can headcanon it that like um, he was interim first prime, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Worried about other people trying to take his place. Okay, on to Enigma. David, would you do the honors? SG-1 arrives through a gate in the middle of a volcanic disaster. The Tolans? Tolanians? I don't know. Tolan. Seem yep. to have more technology than Earth. They are not interested in saying much except one who is obviously infatuated with Carter. While the Tolans refuse to stay on Earth or any more primitive world due to an apparent prime directive, a colonel shows up to steal them away and take their knowledge. Jackson helps the Tolians, Tolans <laughs> contact the Knox, who do some cool stuff with Stargates to take the Tolans away. Oh my god, how many different ways did you say that? Okay, I think Tolans is how they're referred to later in the series. Is it? Okay. Sure. Tolan is the planet, so okay. Yes, Tolan is the planet, so I'll stick with Tolans going forward. Yep. But I like Tolanians. <laughs> so, there's a lot to like in this episode. Um, a lot of exchanges of dialogue, just the whole idea of everything, the really fun last scene or I'm not sure if it's the last scene but anyway where Leah from the Knox comes through just so much fun in this episode and interesting stuff I hardly know where to begin so we only have two speaking alien parts characters today. they're humans not aliens <laughs> that's one of the things <laughs> sorry that got me um, although of course people do refer to humans right here with no science fiction that's true. as Aliens, although it is, again, not a polite term. You're going to make me say Tolanians, aren't you, David? <laughs> you can say Tolans, it's okay. Yeah. So there are only two speaking Tolans, and Omak and Nareem, and I did really like both of those characters for this episode. I love how they make Omak kind of a jerk throughout the entire episode, and yet he's he's always right. Yep. <laughs> like, everything that he worries about, everything that he's curmudgeonly about, is absolutely true. He's just not very diplomatic. The humans on Earth are totally the awful people that he expects them to be. And then Nareem, oh, the Nareem-Carter relationship is just, I think the way the kids describe it today is that it's just so pure, <laughs> right? That it's just so gosh darn wholesome. Okay, you know, they barely even kiss. It's like they're kids on a chaperone date. <laughs> But it's, you know, but this is as close as we get to romance in the Stargate, you know, world, at least for now. They tiptoe around it. They, they, they get it. So, like, he kind of likes her and maybe she kind of likes him a little bit, although she's always professional about it. And, you know, they flirt. They're very cute with their flirting. It's just fun. It's just fun to watch it. 
you know, I was looking at it to see like, hey, is this going to get creepy? And there's, you know, the scene with the emotion thing yeah. was probably the closest it could have gotten to them getting creepy. Like, what if he's feeling horny <laughs> around her? Like, does she really want to experience that as an emotion from him? But, you know, whatever he was experiencing, she doesn't seem to mind. And um, I still think it's a little problematic that, again, they tend to use Carter only when they need a woman. They need someone to be having a relationship with a guy a little bit in this episode. And the other ones, the first commandment was also something where we saw that. But it's just such a light touch here that I just can't find myself a reason to complain about it. The use of the relationship, I didn't like very much. The relationship itself is fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Hammond is basically telling Captain Carter, you know, use your feminine wiles on this guy. (laughs) And, you know, but again, they're saying it in such a, I don't know even what to call it, but, you know, such a non-specific way, non-explicit way that... You really have to read between the lines to get to it. But he's totally telling her to use her feminine wiles on him. Yep. And it works. So eh. To a certain extent. You know, Nerim telling Omak, oh, I didn't tell them anything. And I'm like, you already told them something. Well, he tells some concepts, but he doesn't tell how to make yeah. anything. No, that, that's true. That's true. But, you know, if Omak is trying to be like, don't tell them anything, don't give them a, a single opening. And Nerim is like, oh, I like the cat. <laughs> the cat was very cute. I did enjoy the episode. It is a good episode. Watching it the second time, I could point the only single event that matters in the entire episode, which is, in an act of good faith, they give their technology back to the Tolans. <laughs> After which point, there is actually no tension in this entire episode. And I'm okay with that. It's a nice episode. It doesn't even require there to be any real tension except for how this colonel dude is going to get screwed because he's not going to get what he wants. Even if the SGC folks didn't want to take away their technology again because they're not bad people, Mayborn's folks should have taken away their technology the first second that they were there. Yeah. They wouldn't have been able to, so it doesn't matter. I considered that. Is that a plot hole? And then it came to mind. They could just disappear. It doesn't make a difference because they just, it wouldn't have been allowed. Yeah. 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 It's moot. And therefore I decided, nope, not a plot hole. The Stargate team was able to take away their technology because they were all unconscious or helpless. But by the time that Mayborn came on the scene, they would have been able to do something about it. And so in a way, you know, you look at it and they were actually remarkably restrained about how they dealt with their mm, not quite captors. Captors. No, they were their but captors. But hosts is too gentle. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. It made, it made sense in the context of the show. It made sense in how Hammond is a teddy bear. Yes. And also a reasonable diplomat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, they're right in how they behaved. And, I mean, there's some risks to that, but in diplomacy, there's some risks. And they, the SGC made the right calls. I did note that Omak, for me, was a, hey, it's that guy. Where have I seen that guy? And I looked him up, and it turns out that he played Savitar in The Flash. Oh. He's also been on 24, Charmed, Alias, ER, and many other shows and movies. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Nareem, that, that actor has probably been on other things as well, but I, I don't. Yeah, his name is Garwin Sanford. I didn't. You didn't actually see anything else? Recognize no. him from other stuff, though. He looked like such a Star Trek actor. <laughs> right? Well, then he's got the suit for it. They've got the Star Trek kind of suits for it, too. At the beginning of the episode, this show does one thing, which a lot of these shows do when you think about how the plot works, which is, boy, do they arrive on these planets at just the right time. Just, yeah. yeah. They actually arrived on this planet. After they sent a probe through, then the volcanoes erupted, and then they showed up. <laughs> How, what, what's the timeline there? Well, right, but they needed to, right? Because if it, if it had shown a volcano there, they wouldn't have gone. Exactly, they wouldn't have gone, but they needed the world-destroying disaster to be ongoing yep. exactly when they arrived. So it was, and, 
Yeah. Quite the needle they threaded there. I've talked about this with the Knox in other episodes. That, you know, they, they do have to set things up in a very particular way to get the story they want out of it. And that's true here as well. I do think this has a lot in common with the Knox episode. It does. This is another episode where they are dealing with a society, dealing with a culture that has higher technology than they do. And they deal badly with it in the same way that they did with, with the Knox. You know, we kind of talked about the Knox that there were there are fewer plot holes in this one, I think, than there were in that one. Yes. They had to make their own enemy because they didn't have the gold there. And I think this is the first time they're mentioning the NID. Well, this is kind of different in that this is the first time Hammond is explicitly kind of thrown in with SG-1 over the rest of the military brass. And against the president. And against the president, yeah. And this is the first time he's like, okay, I will help you try to get through this. I won't break any rules exactly, but I'll help you kind of finesse your way around them. You know, this is the Hammond that those of us who have watched the rest of the series are more used to, to seeing it. He's their ally. He's their friend. He, he knows where they're coming from. He wants to do the right thing with them. And it's cool. It's cool when he when he helps out with that. Again, it's really nice to see the Knox again. And I'm, I'm going back and forth about all these things. We're not necessarily going through it the way we do through other episodes. Yeah. This idea that the Knox can, can break through the, not break through, but can, you know, turn off. They can hack the Stargate controls. Right. They can turn off the IRS. They can do all the things they did before, make people invisible, take away items. They can restart the Stargate by raising their arms, which, yeah. Okay, I was I was thinking about this because I just adored this use of the Stargate. Normally, the Stargate is definitively simplex. It's creating a one-way tunnel. Yep. And here, they clearly have enough remote control and the right protocol that they actually can open up a partial <laughs> duplex connection between the two ends, <laughs> both going simultaneously. And she hits the flash button and goes to the other channel which is the sending one. Oh, I love this so much. <laughs> it doesn't contradict anything at all. It just shows a feature of the Stargates that no one else, as we've seen, knows how to do. They're making connections to the Stargate. They said this, the mainframe was melting down, so maybe they had to access the mainframe somehow, and they had to access the iris controls. But I would tend to think of those as being separate than the actual Stargate. To a degree, yes. It's hard to say, because I mean, effectively, I don't understand what a DHD does differently than their supercomputers. I already think we're thinking harder about this than they did when they wrote the episode. I don't care. What they did was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that when she just raised her arm and it makes the target happen, that quote about, you know, sophisticated advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. You know, she's a sorcerer <laughs> right then. It's really cool. I, and I don't, I'm not going to think too hard about exactly what the technology would have to be for arm movements. Like, is it like a theremin control for this? <laughs> I think the other wormhole was already there. She just swapped no, it. No, I think... And we're going to talk about this in Solitudes. So they do think that it's a one-way connection. I think she made a new connection, but it doesn't matter that much either way. Yeah, I think they, the connection to the Nox's planet would have been made when the Stargate activated, because it dialed. So it dialed the Nox's planet. We saw it making the outgoing connection. It just also made an ingoing connection too. <laughs> okay, I'm just not going to think about it that much. What are some other fun things? Well, there's um, when they get the data back from the UAV. So the first time we see a UAV going through the Stargate and Carter is saying it, you know, it looks really hot out there and whatever. And O'Neill says, sounds like LA, which I thought was, was kind of a fun line. I'm sure all the actors have had at least some parts in LA as part of their career. So is that a MacGyver reference? Was MacGyver for, filmed in LA? <laughs> no, it's a Vancouver. There's a lot of fun little things in here that when Nareem says that Carter looked like an angel, but they don't want to say it was an angel, so they say it was a... Shormal. They let him do sort of the cheesy romantic thing of calling her an angel without having 
trying to say that it was an angel because they're a technological civilization. Yeah, he says it was an old superstition of their people. Old superstition, right. And then Carter's saying, I'm not a volcanologist, so he doesn't actually know what's going to happen. I'm not going to tell you why, David, but remember, remember that she has said that in this episode. That's all I'm going to say so far. (laughs) (laughs) And then I did like that they had the hoods on when they came back through Stargate. That was at least a little bit more realistic, right? Because as someone living in California, I know about toxic air more than I want to now. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's really bad for you, even in shorter quantities. The idea that they had to come back, they had to put the hoods on to, to keep doing their work was was nice. It's a nice bit. They didn't ever show them with their hoods on because they don't like showing the actors with their heads obscured, but they did. Anybody else have anything they liked? There are so many other little things I liked about this episode. Sure. I quite like the discussion of Schrodinger's cat yep. before they realize that they do actually both understand how physics works. Uh-huh. Namir gives the response. Sounds like a cruel man. <laughs> yeah, yes. that was fun. Yep. <laughs> Which is pretty much everyone's initial response to Schrodinger's cap. <laughs> right. No, no. It's it's a thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> You'd actually do it. And he calls it, oh yes, equilibrium f- physics. And Sam says, yes, we call it quantum physics. And he says he studied it along with other misconceptions of elementary science. And Sam says, you mean you've licked quantum physics? And then, of course, Omak shows up and gives Nareem the stink eye. <laughs> Some of the conversations with Jackson are quite like, Jackson got a lot of very good lines in this episode. Mm -hmm. Beyond complaining about the president that he voted for him. Yes, I love that. (laughs) I can't believe he would do this. I voted for him. (laughs) But really, a lot of it was the mirrors to the Knox Mm -hmm. that the Tolans represent. And I really quite like when Jackson describing the Knox saying, they called us very young, which is a hair more polite than calling us primitive. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was fun. That was so great. (laughs) It does show how nicely paired the two episodes are. It does not feel at all like retreading the Nox. It feels very different and interesting. And I quite like the idea that, sure, other humans that went out were in space and there are lots of aliens in space. And that also could have helped them develop technology beyond ours. Mm -hmm. All in all, I really quite liked it. Oh, I love to think ahead where the uh, shiny silver-suited Tolans who have never seen living animals since their own solar system disaster are going to go live with the Nox who have leaves in their hair and... On a whole natural planet, so that was quite enjoyable. The wizards off to live with the druids. <laughs> right, well, presumably they're, they're, it's a way station for them to get back to their planet, which the Nox can probably help them with. There's a sort of an outstanding question. I don't know if the Tolans are technically pacifists, but one does start to have to wonder how many advanced civilizations are there out there that are just basically watching the Gauld. Gauld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just go with it. <laughs> I will try it as many times as I want. Yes. Gold. Okay. Basically watching the gold enslave planets and be all horrible to all of these people. And they're they're effectively fellow humans of the Tolans. And basically just say, eh, oh well. And at at some point I do hope that there's, there's some question just watching the horrors that are going on in the galaxy. Yeah, we do not interact with them. It's not our business, basically. Yeah, right. That was an interesting line, right? Because they left their gate open. They don't have an iris, which means in theory that they could pour Jaffa troops into their world and just attack them if they wanted. Mm-hmm. Again, a little weird, but of course, also what was needed in order for the episode to take place at all. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. It's possible there used to be some type of iris on that that is just was disabled during the evacuation. Could be. Could be. Mm-hmm. I, uh... 
did like the parallel. We did not just see the Earth people, the Tolans and the Nox. We also saw the, um, I forget what they're called, but the people from the Broca Divide. And Tuplo showed up to offer to host the Tolans on his planet. And he, of course, was insulted and dismissed. Very rude. That's great. <laughs> he was so nice. <laughs> yes, he was very nice. Right? They were just totally wonderful people. And he was just like, nope, go away. <laughs> But then Nareem is like, no, it's because we don't want to corrupt them with higher technology. And so it totally makes sense. Gomak was such a glorious jerk. I just loved it. <laughs> this is what it looks like to see the Prime Directive taken very seriously. The other side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we might just have to die here. That might happen. Yeah. You saved us. We didn't want you to save us. <laughs> we were doing fine on our own. There would have been a rescue ship soon. <laughs> well, and there was that moment early in the early in the episode, which again was kind of needed by the plot, where Omak says, no, you shouldn't have saved us. A ship was coming and they could revive us far past your ability to save us from death. So there's actually the possibility, doesn't matter that much, but there's a possibility that the ship showed up, saw a bunch of people who were like recently dead, and just picked them up and revived them and took them back mm -hmm. to the new place. Mm -hmm. The humans from Earth just screwed everything up. Yeah. Right. These people may have their own version of sarcophagus or whatever. Yeah. I think they were willing to die, though. I mean, that, that was the point. In order to avoid it, making what happened before, yep. they'll die to stop that from happening. Right. I will note that in addition to the introduction of Mayborn, I don't remember if we've seen Sergeant Walter Hereman before. Gary Jones is the actor, if we've seen him before on the show, but um, he may not have any lines beyond yes, sir, in this, but he is definitely a recurring character who doesn't usually do a huge amount of stuff, but he's there. and He's there a lot. Yes, he's there a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure we've seen him already. He's always been in the background, and you probably hear his voice too, because of course they're always still announcing. Mm, right. Chevron, Chevron one, whatever Chevron. activated. <laughs> Yeah. I was wondering, like, takes a couple of goes through this episode before you start wondering about it. Where did she get the cat? Is that her cat? It sounds like a cat named by a scientist. Yeah, it looked like a well-cared-for cat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's because it's from the props department, but yes. <laughs> well, I mean, she didn't just go adopt it from the pound or whatever. She didn't pick one off the street, right? <laughs> I'm assuming she gave him her cat. Her cat, yeah. Yeah, it could be. Well, I hope Schrodinger is happy. The only cat on an entirely new planet. Well, I'm sure he'd be happy on the Knox planet. That's true. They might have cats but, in But uh, maybe not on the spaceship sterile world that they end up going to. She didn't really give Nareem like a litter box or anything. So yeah, that's... <laughs> that's one of the things I do kind of wish they had like lanterned at least or brought up in a conversation. They never cover the fact that this is their home planet too. Oh, yeah. Or that humanity isn't even aware of the gate. And Stargate Command is kind of doing the same thing Omak believes, which is keeping some technology under wraps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So I, I just I find it odd that that didn't come up. I mean, of course, there are millions of animals because this is where all us four-limbed creatures came from. No, it's true. Yeah. And I just, it would have been nice. Maybe, maybe they realized it or they didn't. I don't know. But it just, I would have liked... Oh, by the way, welcome home. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would have muddied the episode a bit, but but yeah, sure. They wanted to have it be a situation where like, you know, a more advanced civilization dealing with a less advanced civilization. And that's the story. The rest of it is true, but but it would have made it a little weirder because then they're like, well, do we owe anything to the people that we came from? And of course they would say they didn't, but yeah. They were still a group of people that were taken away here by the gold originally, probably. Well, Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. That's true. They're, they're, they're 
could have been other aliens involved, but still, they're from here. Because we know Thor's race took people off to another planet. Of course, that never made a whole lot of sense either, but they did. And so it wasn't just the ghoul taking people. It's interesting to think about that. That's kind of like a fan fiction-y thing. Like, like, hey, let's explore this corner that they never had time to explore in SG-1. Totally. <laughs> I also thought it was uh, interesting. Like, the Nox just blew through Earth's defenses and it's because they were more technologically advanced. So you know, the thought occurred to me, hey, we should be really happy the Gua'uld are not that technologically advanced. Because if they could have just blown through the iris, they would have. Oh, yeah. Right. They are users, not innovators, luckily for us. It's an aspect of the Stargate science that I quite liked in this episode is they try to explain basically nothing. <laughs> and it works really well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't bother trying to explain anything. It all kind of fits within the world. It doesn't feel too out of whack. So it's it's nicely balanced. But they don't try and explain it. And there's this the brief conversation with Jackson when um, a bit of the communication starts getting communicated to him. And then Jackson says, so it means like you're folding space. And the response is, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Because they could have gone with their, like, oh yeah, that's a good approximation for a primitive culture. But he's like, no, you just don't understand him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also love college physics. And college physics is now going to go into my head alongside high school chemistry <laughs> as a way for the writers to describe their own understanding mm -hmm. of the science that they're using in the episode and their inability to describe it any better than that, which is fine. You know, again, like it, by keeping it all hidden, keeping it all something that the, the Tolons were, I almost said it, the Tolons were not showing to the humans of Earth. You know, they made it so they didn't have to try to explain anything. It worked pretty well with the Nox, but it worked even better here, I think. I also want to say the, I think the, that demonstration of the Stargate, opening the Stargate with your hands, was a better demonstration of how superior the Noxus technology was than that, you know, that three-second glimpse of some bad CGI of floating stuff. Because this is means it's something intertwined with the technology which we have been hearing about in every episode so far. And we're seeing how it worked. We're not seeing how it worked, but seeing the difficulty of it. Mm -hmm. And then to make something really easy that people on Earth would found to be very difficult. Again, it seemed like a better demonstration of that, a, a more, it just hit home a little better. Yeah, it's definitely a sufficiently advanced technology to look like magic. Both of these episodes have aspects of uh, cool Stargate theories in it, and I quite like them both for that. Two other things I'd like to throw in, I, I think sure. the climax, which was only a climax in the sense that <laughs> really, what else is going to happen? But it also had the most witch mountain-like yeah, yeah. quality <laughs> that I've ever seen in this show, which is basically just magic happens, the guns disappear, people vanish, things float, sure, why not? I really quite quite liked that that aspect of it. It just it almost felt silly in in how derivative the how do you deal with these shooting. Like in modern days they would have the Guns fired and the bullets just stopping in the air, but true. now we'll just have the guns vanish. <laughs> I thought it was good fun. Well, it did feel like a climax to me anyway. Like there was suspense. They were just kind of bearing down on this whole sort of the military is going to do bad things. Right. I mean, Mayborn was ordering to the soldiers to fire on these people and the soldiers or airmen were raising their weapons with no apparent qualms ready to shoot at these unarmed yep. civilians who were going to take their technology away with them. And even when they were gone and it was just Leah, you know, this, this woman standing there and they were gone, Mayborn ordered the airmen to shoot her just out of spite, apparently. So he certainly demanded demonstrated his evilness pretty thoroughly there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Twirling the mustache. So it was a yeah. dramatic conflict, even if having seen the episode, we know that Mayborn didn't have a chance, but it was quite dramatic in the moment, I thought. I, I think the previous scenes where the airman came in and she said, describing how they escaped, 
I mean, like poof, sir. <laughs> they went right through me. <laughs> I think to a degree, their inability to do anything about the Tolans was pretty clear at that point, but I really quite liked her delivery. It's also a good dramatic technique, right? Like you say what happened in a way that you have it in your mind's eye, and then they get to show it to you. So it's not a surprise when you see it, but it's it emphasizes it. Repetition is another, you know, big tool of drama. They just wrote and and directed this episode really nicely. Yeah. To give us a good a good dramatic experience. Yes. There were some quite nice lines at the end where Leah says, Your race has learned nothing. Yep. And Daniel looks so ashamed and disappointed. <laughs> and then she says, But you, Daniel, have. But you have. There were a lot of good <laughs> facial expressions there. Nareem also had some good wistfulness when he was leaving. I liked when Omak said to Daniel, Nareem was right about you, which yeah, yeah, that is a nice. little weird because I didn't see Nareem and Daniel interacting that much in the episode. I think he just meant the team. Yeah. But then he says, perhaps in time we'll meet again. And he pats Daniel's shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I also really quite liked O'Neill's line at that climax. God, I love those people. <laughs> Which is funny because he was annoyed with the Knox before. <laughs> he was very annoyed at them, yeah. But he's learned. But by the end, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I have in my notes with Carter and Nareem, uh, Jackson was playing the C-3PO role. Yes. <laughs> I almost wanted Carter to say, Show me more of this Tolan thing called kissing. But. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That would have been funny. (laughs) That's the fan fiction. That's the fan fiction right there. Absolutely the fan fiction there. And then at the very end, we got yet another mention of the line that we had twice in the Knox, where Daniel says he was thinking about what the little guy with funny hair told us. (laughs) And Jack repeats the line. The very young do not always do as they're told. Though I have to admit, while Jackson cannot be court-martialed, I think he can be put in a dark cell in the bottom of a very deep pit for a very long time. And Mayborn specifically threatens him with, we're going to take you off the program. They can totally do that. Right. But they didn't. (laughs) I don't know if that actually is going to come up at all. I expect not. But it's a bit unfortunate because, yeah, that that threat should mean something. It should. And in Watsonian terms, I'm not sure at all why he gets away with it, other than he does have these linguistic skills. But still, they must have some other linguists. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not nowhere else. The other thing is he didn't really need to be in the gate room. Like, Teal'c and him were in the gate room. They weren't doing anything in there. The help he did, he didn't have to get caught. That's true. I thought it was actually kind of strange that they bothered uh, well, having that, because they didn't need to be there, I don't think. Drama. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they wanted to have the scene with Omak talking to Daniel, right? So... That's true. But yeah, you're, you're right. They could, have, they could have totally done it without that. Good episode, though. And, you know, I think... What is it, O'Neill who says to Mayborn, you know, oh, we can't be court-martialed. And, you know, everyone's kind of smiling at that as if it's some some big gotcha. <laughs> and it really, it really isn't. It really isn't. I think he could have made a case for conspiracy or something. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> you can hand wave it by saying, you know, Hammond was able to kind of fight back once they were gone and say, you know, no, these people are doing good work. You shouldn't take it out on them. Whatever. But yeah, don't think too hard about virtually any aspect of this and you'll be good. <laughs> Shall we move from the plot light episode to the plot really light episode? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Let's do it. Solitude. More fun with gates. Teal'c and Jackson return to SGC through an overloading Stargate, but Carter and O'Neill are missing. Carter and O'Neill, who's been badly hurt, find themselves in a glacial cave and try to get the Stargate working again. 
Jackson and Carter both figured out, independently, that the gate network might have dropped them nearby. The SG teams search nearby worlds but find nothing. Carter's attempts to dial home help Jackson figure out that they might be near a second Earth Stargate, which keeps getting a busy signal. Some clever science finds the gate and they pick up a very cold Carter and O'Neill from Antarctica. Yep. Yeah, fun episode. I have one issue with this episode, but this episode is wonderful. <laughs> okay. Well, do you want to start by saying how you felt it was wonderful, or do you want to start by complaining about it? Ooh, let's start with the complaint. Okay. <laughs> Stargate science time. Oh, no. Now, <laughs> yes? I have to admit, I figured out the answer a few minutes before everyone in the, in the show. Oh, yeah? Okay. But really, that wasn't very impressive because I actually know things from later in the other shows. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was slightly spoiled, I had, and I have some slight more knowledge about what happens when Stargates are put near to each other. <sighs> yeah. So I, I had an inkling there. It didn't occur to me that the references would be this early in the show. Yeah. Because yeah. I have only started watching these shows 10 years later from now. So I was still surprised, which was good. What I don't understand is the fact that in this episode, they suddenly decide they have to start talking about finding the seventh Chevron again. And that was the bit that kind of surprised me because they have a DHD, which they find after digging it out of the ice. And it has all the symbols they know except for one, which must be the seventh symbol. So now they're pressing the seven symbols. I think the idea is you need to dial with the seventh symbol to dial anything. And they just don't normally mention it. They normally mention a gate address, but they're always saying where they're from. Although that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because if you have to do that for every planet that you're on, they never talk about having to find out the, the current symbol of the planet that they're on. So my understanding from the previous episodes is the Stargates have 39 symbols and the DHDs have 38 symbols because the DHD knows where it is. Yeah. Yeah. As part of the commissioning process of putting a DHD into operation, you tell it where it is and therefore it doesn't have that last symbol on it. And I don't know why they did that, and I still might be missing something, but I was just a little confused in that aspect, that they decided to have so much focus being put on the seventh symbol that they need to find. I mean, it was only a couple of seconds, but yeah, 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 you're right. That's it, though. Otherwise, this episode was wonderful. (laughs) My only logic complaint about this was, why are they just now sending exploratory teams to the closest planets? You would think those would have been the ones that they explored first. (laughs) Well, maybe they had been there before, but it just takes time to go back to them. Like, I would suspect that they would have already been to some of them, but that's moot. Because they can only go to the places that they've already figured out the exact addresses for. The one thing this episode does ignore, which is probably for the best, is how do you correct for the stellar drift? And do you actually need to do that with a DHD? And the show has no consistency in that regard. Mm. Okay, there's two things. The other one was, why in the world doesn't Carter just dial somewhere else (laughs) that she knows is safe and warm, and then try and get to Earth from a place that's safe? Right, go to to Thor's planet or something. Anywhere. (laughs) Lots of options. They can get back from there. I can headcanon saying whatever you have to do to a DHD to get it to be able to correct for stellar drift hasn't been done to this one. Mm. So maybe they figure it can only go locally, but okay. eh, but I don't know. Yeah, but they don't they don't know where this planet is. Or you could also say you don't know how much power this gate has, so maybe it's better to go. Oof. Wow, I I think I have thought about that in the past, but I had forgotten it by the time we were watching these episodes. <laughs> and yeah, that's a really I, that's actually the biggest plot hole. You you can head Canada away though. You can head Canada away. Uh, so so it's not. But it's better if you just forget it. 
It really is better if you just forget it. So just don't don't listen to us, podcast listeners. <laughs> just watch the episode on your own. That's right. Because there's a lot of really good stuff in this episode to focus on. You know, I talked in the last about the last couple of, of episodes that we talked about, about how the show often just can't manage to get the interpersonal stuff done very well. This is a, an example where they actually do it really, really nicely. Those scenes with Carter and O'Neill are just really nice moments of characters interacting. And, you know, and there's a lot of exposition that happens in the middle of it. But it's just, you know, them interacting together in, in a way that lets us know a little more about the characters and, and see what they're like in sort of longer time frames than just a couple seconds. And it just, yeah, it, it worked really well, I think. It felt very real. It does feel like there are some episodes where the writing is just definitively a touch tighter than all the other episodes. Mm. And this is one of those episodes where the writing just felt tighter, like they just went that extra mile to have it uh, really feel more real than um, in some episodes. I really like the leadership that Jack demonstrates throughout this episode. He's the one who's really injured, but Sam is the one who is really demoralized, yeah. and he makes it his job to keep her working and, and fighting and trying to figure things out, not letting her give up. And in the end, when he's pretty sure they can't get out this way, he orders her to go off and, quote, look for help, unquote, by which he means leave him to die and maybe she can save herself. And it was really perfectly executed for, you know, the commander trying to save his subordinate like yep. that, but also with the real affection that the two characters have for each other showing through, even though they mostly stick to Colonel and Carter instead of, uh, he calls her Sam a few times, but mostly through this. Uh, yeah. If not all, she calls him Colonel because she needs to lean on him <laughs> as her commanding officer. There are moments that are somewhat less professional in this episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there's also, I, I did notice this time around, we're watching through it again. O'Neill gets off like, like 10 quips throughout the whole thing. Like he's making jokes throughout the entire episode. Oh, right. That's his defense mechanism. It, yeah. Absolutely. It wasn't showy, but it was part of his character all the way through. And, and I did. Yeah, I really liked that. It, yeah, it felt natural for him to be doing that in these times. And it had more meaning than just him throwing off quips. He's always trying to make her feel more at ease, make her feel a little less tense about what's going on. The thing about the sidearm, mm -hmm. which makes her laugh at a moment where you know, she's feeling really down. Stuff like that. He's always been doing these sorts of quips, but again, finally it becomes something Something that, that is really meaningful to the episode, and I, I liked it. They feel natural, and they are not over the top. I quite like even at the very beginning, Carter says, I think your leg is broken. And O'Neill responds, no, my leg is definitely broken. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's just nice, subtle, but funny. <laughs> well, and he complains about how she splinted his leg, which I thought was, you know, his, totally his personality to complain like that. Yeah. Although, of course, in other ways, he could be quite stoic. He sort of got to focus on that as something that he could make little jokes about. So. I suppose I should be impressed that he got out. You wouldn't think jagged bone digging into raw nerves would hurt, but it does. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Yeah, that was a nice little scene where, like, you know, they had, they actually showed the splinting, which is not something they necessarily needed to. And they kind of talked through it in, in the middle of it. Like, she's trying to get him to talk about something to take his mind off of it. And right. he kind of doesn't necessarily want to at first because that part was even worse than this in some ways. Right. So. When he was in trouble on the border between Iraq and Iran, I think his parachute didn't open in time, so he was hurt. And he mentions his wife. I'm not sure Carter has ever heard that much about his wife, it doesn't sound like. Well, there was the episode, but I'm not sure when the fake son and all that but um i didn't actually watch that recently was did was carter involved in that she... uh she met the wife for sure oh, she met the wife okay didn't interact much okay i mean ex-wife called lazarus right lazarus one other thing i really really liked about this episode is that not one but two 
bad science fiction tropes were subverted. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they were done really well in that subversion. The first one is when there was an SGC engineer. I didn't look up his name. Master Sergeant Siler. We see a lot of him. Okay, great. The gate... Maybe not the gate itself, but all their connections to the gate were damaged when the energy pulse came through at the beginning of the episode. And the engineer says that it's going to take 24 hours to fix. And Hammond says, I'll give you half of that. And the engineer says, no, sir, it doesn't work like that. 24 hours is the best I can do. (laughs) I I laughed and clapped (laughs) because you see that so often. I don't know if it was a trope before Star Trek, the original series, but I've seen it so many times since then, and it's so bad. (laughs) Right. You you don't tell your Stargate engineers how to do their engineering. Mm. And the the second one? The second one is after Sam makes it up through the crevasse, breaks through the surface, and sees what's up there. She tells Jack that it's an ice planet. There's just ice as far as the eye can see. <laughs> yep. So yep, yep. you get back to the old trope of ice planets, jungle planets, you know. Right. Star Wars. Yep. Your first contact point is the whole planet and that's it. Desert planet, whatever. Right, right. Tatooine, Hoth. <laughs> to be fair, she's not walking out of there. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I have that written down as well. That, that, that was very funny. And yet they still do it. You know, Stargate still does it. And maybe they don't. Maybe they don't mention it too much. But of course, it usually doesn't matter because they were only going very close to the Stargate anyway. I did love that. They're like, oh, it's an ice planet. And it's like, nope, not an ice planet. Well, yeah, 90% of the time they're right by the Stargate. And almost all of those times they're in a forest. So the number of biomes we see are probably not that large. <laughs> but, but absolutely. Yeah. I don't think they've stated that the planets are expected to all be that. It's the forest planet. I don't think we quite see that. Right. The Toronto planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Another thing that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned was um the scene at the end where they're rescuing O'Neill and Carter and Hammond and Daniel are there. No, that makes no sense. <laughs> One, they're there within hours, which is ridiculous. And two, that they're there at all when there's a perfectly good military base right nearby that can handle it. I'm sure somebody on the show thought, you know, we just don't get that poor actor who plays General Hammond in any other sets. <laughs> than those stupid Stargate sets. You know, please, let's put him somewhere else. And, you know, he's never going to get through the gate on their regular missions. But, oh, we can we can send him to Antarctica. And Sam actually makes the point, sir, you came through the gate for us? Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> there are so many scenes in this first season and later seasons, which I think of as being iconic because they show up in the credits. And, of course, that scene, General Hammond is in the credits from that scene, from him in the parka and the things. Mm-hmm. I'd been looking at that scene wondering, when in the world does he gate to an ice planet? <laughs> and he didn't. He going to do that, yeah. Yep. That, that surprised me exactly. There's one scene that might be from season two. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but we will get to that when we get to that. I think there's actually, I'm afraid, a much simpler, more boring Doyleist answer, which is economy of actors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in order to have anyone else show up, they would have had to give them lines, which means they would have had to have paid them for lines. Um, and it was just cheaper to use the actors they already had. Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly expensive if they had actually done that in the real world. Very cheap for a show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to weird economics. <laughs> Certain something I'm sure, David, you're keeping this in mind already, but okay, now we know there's another gate on Earth and there's a DHD device on Earth as well and where where that might lead in the future. Maybe nowhere because this is a very episodic show where everything returns to stasis right away, but maybe it'll lead to something down the line, some important aspect of some plot. 
down the line. Well, yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware of other Stargates, but I'm not aware of what happens to this one specifically. Mm-hmm. And certainly not the DHD. At least the second gate is nicely isolated, so they shouldn't have any trouble keeping that one under wraps. Right, right. Well, the other thing, there was a serpent guard apparently under the ice, and I don't remember if that is actually... The Gould were here, or at least sent people to go through this gate at some point in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that ever being important again exactly, but it was interesting that they, had, they added that. Yep. There are some uh, timing aspects of it that I don't know if they make sense, but I have to give, and you made reference to this episode in the previous episode, which I absolutely love, which is one of the reasons they get to the conclusion, because while Jackson isn't an astrophysicist, at least he's smart. He has the capacity for logical thinking. Yep. And one of the things he does, which is his skill set, is ask the question, why are we seeing people out on other planets that are connected to cultures that didn't exist on Earth when Ra was kicked off? <laughs> right. And they bring well, it up. Yeah. I did not they, expect they, it, they right? would like, actually bring that yeah. up. I was amazed. Yeah. I was so impressed. It's yeah. like the writers right? watch right. some of the show. <laughs> I was so impressed. The actual reason is because they wanted to use well-known cultures from Earth, and those absolutely don't line up with ancient Egypt. Let me take my Watsonian answer. There are so few good Watsonian answers in this show. (laughs) Yes, that's the doylest one. They want cultures people can recognize. Yeah. But, oh, they gave you a Watsonian one. They hung a lantern on it. I was impressed. And that's actually a lot of of things that I've been thinking of as Stargate as being a smarter, a better world-building show. It's not actually that they're really all that much smarter or they're all not better at world-building, but they are better at connecting things. They give you these little moments where it just the show seems to be a lot smarter than it normally is. And that's enough for me. Yeah, you give me that a couple of times a season and you, you know, I'm on your side. And they do. Yeah. And they keep doing it. So I was entirely surprised. I, again, something I really like about the show. It's the one thing I was willing to just assume was going to happen in this show is nice periodic growth of world building. If any show I expected to do that pretty well, it was this show. Mm-hmm. And this is just a wonderful example of that. Yes. You're right. There isn't really that much plot in this one. So <laughs> we're yeah, we don't necessarily have that much more to talk about than we did about the last one. Are there any sort of good moments? I quite liked when O'Neill and Carter are discussing the possibilities as to what happened. The bit of dialogue where Carter gives the three options for what happened, and then O'Neill asks, what's four? Carter says, there is no four. O'Neill says, it's after three. Not this time, Colonel. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. And of course, maybe there were other options, but it made sense. And uh, I really quite like that bit of dialogue. And also a bit again of good Stargate science. And this might be the best Stargate science we've seen. (laughs) Using the rumbling of the Stargates to try and locate the Stargates based on knowing the time and using worldwide seismographs. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. That's plausible. (laughs) Yeah, I did think about that. Yeah. And I was really quite impressed with that. To the point where I, I wonder if they actually started from that and said, how can we use that almost? Because that is really where the puzzle gets solved. Like that detail, somebody had to think up. Like somebody in the writer's room, they couldn't just think, oh, it's another Stargate. They had to think of that detail as well. Someone was thinking and, and it, it showed in this episode. Yeah. I also did like the little moment where Daniel is figuring all this stuff out and he says to Teal'c, what happens when you dial your own phone number? <laughs> Wrong person to ask that. Then he turns to Hammond and Hammond says, you get a busy signal. <laughs> it wasn't necessary, but it was just a cute little moment. 
I did also like, I've seen this episode many times, but seeing at this time the progression of O'Neill getting sick, Mm -hmm. it was sort of nicely kind of spaced out because I had remembered this episode as O'Neill is sort of near death. That's kind of how I remembered him in this episode, but that only kind of happens at the end. It's a gradual progression down for him and Mm -hmm. that moment where they're on the outcropping, which has the DHD and O'Neill first coughs up blood. I thought was uh, pretty standard for these sorts of plot lines, but just showing, oh yes, this is serious and this is ongoing and this is going to get, only going to get worse. He's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. Just standard, but nice dramatic techniques there to keep him going. And then Carter, and the nice thing, the, the actor Amanda Tapping, which plays the frustration that Carter has being unable to make the gate work, even though she can't think of a reason why it wouldn't work. That was nice. Again, to highlight how serious it is, is, you know, even Carter, even our brilliant scientist, humans from other planets think she's a brilliant scientist, can't figure it out. So it's got to be really serious. And I think they did nicely with that. They did nicely with that progression. I also appreciated that someone on the writer staff said, well, obviously she's going to just turn it off and turn it back on again and see if it works, <laughs> which I thought was a beautiful thing to try, even though it doesn't work, except for some reason, it seems to have a little more power on that first attempt. Sure, why not? Well, you definitely have to try that. I mean, any technology problem, if you don't, you've just got to. <laughs> <laughs> But there was that sense that Carter didn't actually fix the DHD until she turned it off and turned it back on again, which would mean they would only have one rumbling thing. They only used two. They used the initial disaster oh, okay. and the later one after she turned it on and turned it off again. Mm-hmm. So that was consistent. Okay. But it's a little unclear because the Stargate did do most of the same busy signal actions earlier. Yeah, right? Yeah. My head can would just be a, it had a little more oomph after being turned off and turned on again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally scientific. A little more oomph. Doesn't matter too much exactly anyway. But Turning it off and on again, cleared out its cache and stuff. Yep. <laughs> you have to give these DHDs and the Stargates. This stuff is well built. It lasts for thousands, thousands of years, you know, or for however long the plot needs it to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll get more of that. Cool. David, you were kind of saying before, this is this is in like the top five for you? Absolutely. I was, I was really impressed with this episode. This episode inspired me to try and actually do uh, rankings of all the episodes. Uh, but I still have a couple more episodes this season to watch before I can uh, add them into my ranking. Right. Right. This is this is currently, I think, my third. So, Trish, do you have any uh, final thoughts? I believe we've about covered everything I wanted to say about these episodes. Oh, the, the one thing I, we will put in the show notes, there is a scene, an outtake that was filmed with uh, Amanda Tapping with um, Richardine Anderson, where she has a very funny little bit of riffing. It is adorable. And yeah, we'll put a, we'll put a link to that in there. Fun little extra bit. Okay. I think that about does it for this time. I would, as always, like to thank you two for a fun and interesting conversation. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. For the readers, we appreciate, sorry, the listeners, we appreciate your spending time with us. If you would like to continue the conversation with us, we will be on Twitter at Stargate underline SG underline fun, or of course on the incomparable members Slack. And uh, we'd certainly like to hear from people who have thoughts about these episodes or the show in general, or our analyses of them. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll be talking to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.